Hi everyone, I'm Gates. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Killer Country. We are back with a possible part two. Yes, we <laughs> will decide. This, we've decided it's been part two. <laughs> yes, so I am in El Dorado, Illinois. So it was originally named El Dorito after the town's founder, Judge Samuel Elder, and his neighbor, Joseph Reed. I like El Dorito better. better. I do too. I Legend says. Nachos, nacho oh, flavored. Gosh. Yes. No, they, the dill pickle, the dill pickle Doritos are something Those way are better. So good. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I don't I've always loved pickles. I don't think it's a pregnancy that's making me more of a pickle lover. No. But oh Doritos. I Nick is on his way home. I should text him to pick me up some. <laughs> Tell him to pick our son up some. Yes, that's right. So legend says that a sign painter for the railroad painted the name El Dorado on the train depot as a result of the spelling and pronunciation. Oh, and as a result, the spelling and pronunciation was forever changed. So it was originally like Elder Rito. Mm -hmm. And then um, I guess he just assumed that there was a typo and he decided to fix it. Okay. So it's in an area called Little Egypt in South Illinois, and there are a few reasons why people speculate that it's called Little Egypt. Without knowing much about this case and everything, whenever I was reading that, I was like, oh, it's probably because it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in BFE, like, um, fucked <laughs> Egypt. <laughs> but no. So some legends say that it could be the result of settlers from northern Illinois that had to travel to southern Illinois uh, for grain. And they compared themselves to the ancient Israelites because both groups had to travel to a different area to buy grain. Oh, So okay. it could be that. It also could be the similarity in shapes between the mounds of the natives that had lived in the area uh, beforehand. Why, why is this not making sense to me? <laughs> okay, just tell me if it makes sense to you. Okay. Others... Other legends say it's because of the similarity in shapes between the mounds of the natives that had lived in the area previously to the ancient pyramids in Jesus in, Jesus, in <laughs> Egypt. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense to me. So, like, the Native Americans that lived in the area lived in huts, which they did in the Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> kind of okay. like a yurt-style hut. So, maybe they just happened to look similar to the pyramids. Okay. Perfect. I, I don't know why English is just not connecting to, for me today. <laughs> so the area that we are going into is a sundown town. Sundown town, sunset town, gray town, sundowner towns, whatever you want to call them. What they are is an all-white neighborhood that practices a form of racial segregation that excludes non-whites through intimidation or violence. Now, I'm not sure how um, a lot of our abroad listeners know um, about sundown town. So I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of information about it. So we kind of know and can prepare for what I'm about to tell you about the story. Yes. So the term sundown town came from the set, the signs posted that colored people had to leave the town by, by sundown. This included anyone that is not in the majority. So um, turns out Jewish people were involved in that. 
but also Native Americans, Chinese, Japanese, Blacks, Hispanics, anyone that wasn't white. Yeah, I was just going to say, basically, if you weren't white. Yeah, basically, if you weren't a white man, you needed to get out by sundown. Yeah. Aside from all the signs letting people know that colored people were allowed after dark, um, they would help enforce it by violence. So there was a guidebook published between 1936 and 1966 called the Negro Motorist Green Book that let travelers know where safe accommodations were in the area. Over 2 million people used this guidebook between 1936 and 1966. Southern Illinois has also been compared to Alabama Hmm. because of how racist it is and how it is also big clan territory. That's interesting because Illinois is so, so much the Midwest. Yeah. You know, that that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Like, wh- I mean, my best friend growing up was black. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things to where like being from the Midwest, I never, it's not that I never saw color, but color just never mattered to me. Like if you were a nice person, you were a nice person. Right. It didn't matter. Well, I, I can kind of come from a different perspective. I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but the town I grew up in was, was so small. We had one African-American family. Mm-hmm. And so we had, and, and their mom was white. So it was just their dad who was black. Um, and we had, you know, two girls in our class that were black and that was it. That was mm-hmm. the only black people we saw in our town at least um thankfully you know my parents we we traveled as kids so it was uh, we were exposed to a lot more color than most of the people from my town but you ask anyone from rural minnesota a lot of those people stay they don't they don't travel very far um they stay right there and that's okay but it just shows like there are areas in the midwest even today in 2021 that are not exposed mm-hmm different cultures of any kind seriously i was so surprised whenever i moved here and saw like how many german restaurants there were Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like german and vietnamese i was not 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 prepared but like i'm used to mexican food chinese food japanese food things like that being the big items back Mm -hmm. home so um For those listeners abroad that haven't listened to our Colorado episode or they just aren't familiar with the Ku Klux Klan, which, um, by the way, during my research, I just found out I have been mispronouncing it my entire life. What is it? It's Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. I thought it it was Ku Klux Klan. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, no L in the Ku. (laughs) Apparently, I just wanted to add as many L's as I could because that's all these people are. Yeah. Losers. Yes. So the KKK was established in 1865 and is the oldest and most famous of all of the American hate groups. At the time, their main goal was to violently intimidate black people or people who supported equality at the time from voting or holding public office. So now that we know how kind of racist this area is, we're going to go ahead and talk about it. So I just have their current population. I did not get the population from the 1980s, which I apologize for, but the current population is 3,812 people. That's not big. So we are, it is not big. The most people that they ever had in their town was 5,000 people. And that was well before this. Oh, wow. So we're going to be talking about Dr. Dale Cavaness, also known as Dr. Dale. So he grew up in El Dorado, also known as 
the little Egypt area. He was born in 1925, and his father was a Gandhi dancer. Have you ever heard that term before? <laughs> I had not either. It is a railroad track maintenance worker. Huh. So during the um, Great Depression, his family was a very well off because his father was employed as a railroad 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 worker. Holy cow! Um, so he was employed during the Great Depression, so they had a little bit of money to get them through. Mm-hmm. Dale was extremely competitive, and he found success in most of the things that he tried. He was considered an all-American boy because he was gifted on the football football field despite his smaller size, and he was an excellent student. Near the end of his high school career, he started dating a woman named Helen Jean Pierce, who was the daughter of the local physician. Shortly after he graduated from high school in the 1930s, he joined the U.S. Navy, where he was honorably discharged after only serving two years and serving in World War II. When he got back from war, he married his high school sweetheart, Helen, and before he could start his residency, um, like this is a few years later, before he could start his residency, his wife left him for a friend of his, which is upsetting, but it's also okay because we later find out that he's an abusive piece of trash. Oh, okay. Well, then that's fine. Leave him high and dry. Yes. Understandably, at the time, Dale was heartbroken, and he later found his comfort in one of Helen's friends named Marianne Newberry. Oh. So at first, Marianne was reluctant to date her good friend's ex-husband, but eventually she relented and they began their relationship. At first, just like all of these stories, they seemed to have had a fairy tale romance. And a few years into their relationship, Marion actually accepted a position at an airline that was based in New York, and she fell in love with big cities. When Marianne went to meet Dale's family in Southern Illinois in their super small town that probably had about 3,000 people at the time, she was not impressed. Despite, you know, his humble roots, they got married on October 3rd, 1952. And whenever they got married, they were living in St. Louis where Dale was finishing his education. So he was finishing his doctorate at the time. Oh, wow. Marianne assumed that once he finished school um, in one big city, they were in St. Louis, they would be moving to another big city where he could work as a physician. Mm -hmm. But shortly after graduation, Dale announced... Uh, that they would be moving back to El Dorado. Mm. Marion was, was not thrilled. <laughs> no. She was upset about moving to a small town, but she she tried to make the best of it. I mean, in times like this, whenever you're married, you're you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. So on Dale and Marianne's first wedding anniversary, they had a beautiful romantic evening and they both were drinking some wine. Now whenever I say some, I mean a few glasses. Both of them had had a few glasses each. And after they had had their glasses, Marianne mentioned that she wanted to move back to a big city. She was not happy with this little town living. And after she said that, Dale punched her right in the face. Whoa. That escalated quickly. (laughs) So quickly. (laughs) So after this night of him just straight up decking her, Um, Dale would often become abusive while drinking, and just like every other abuser, he would apologize shortly after, and just like with most victims, Marianne would just forgive him later, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But 
I mean, back in the fifties, back in the thirties, forties. Yeah. What, as a woman, what could you do? Right. Really not much. Well, she was working for an airline. She could have just jumped on a plane. She could have. That is actually an option. She could have. She should have. Less than two years after they got married in 1954, they welcomed their first son. His name is Mark Dale Cavaness. And one thing that we will notice is all of her sons have the same middle name. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that speaks to how much of a narcissist his father is, but (laughs) we can move on. So uh, Dale was actually, fun fact, Dale was the person to deliver him. So he was the person to deliver his son because oh, he he's was a the physician. Local physician. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, that, would be, that would make sense. <laughs> yes. And less than two years after Mark came into this world, they welcomed another son named Kevin Dale Kevin S. Now, after this, we're just going to move on to his work life. So Dale was a popular physician because not only did he diagnose, but he also treated those in low-come neighborhoods. To take care of his patients, he would often stay late, he would come in early, and he was even known to make house calls when patients were unavailable to make unable to make it to his office. If well, he that knew, sounds very nice. He sounds so nice. Yeah. Like literally his entire schedule, his entire life revolved around his patients. He'd get up early to see them, he'd stay out late to see them, he'd even make, you know, trips to their house. Mm-hmm. And if he knew a patient was unable to pay a bill, he'd just write it off. Like he would not allow his staff to send bills to people that he knew that couldn't afford them. Why has he got to be such a bad person at home? I know, right? Dang. So, and it is said that he was great to every single person until they did something to upset him. Of course, Mm -hmm. home life like excluded from this. Yeah. But Dr. Dale had a thirst for vengeance and for those that he believed wronged him. He was extremely quick to anger, especially if alcohol or any type of drug was involved. Over time, as he got more comfortable in his job, he actually started drinking at his office. And he would even, drink, he would even drink alcohol before performing surgeries. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. It's no. It, it, it is malpractice. It is illegal. Please don't do that. <laughs> In 1962, uh, he welcomed another son named Sean Dale Kevinus. And I'm sorry, I might at some point pronounce it Sheen because it's the S-E-A-N, oh. Sean. <laughs> but Sean Dale Kevinus. Years after moving to the small town and three children later, Marianne just decided she'd give up her dreams of moving back to the big city. She just decided at this point, I mean, it is what it is. She's married. She has three kids. She can't Mm -hmm. really go anywhere else. And at this point, after Sean is born, Dale was drinking and doing drugs more than he had ever done before. And he started pulling cruel pranks on people. Oh. So Dale's son, Kevin, his first memory was of his father locking him in a closet and leaving them leaving him there until he started to cry. Kevin said that his father scolded him for being a baby. But why did he lock him in a closet though? That's just Be- rude. Because he wanted to. Like that was a cruel prank that he wanted to play on him. That's terrible. It's rude. It's hateful. Yeah. 
the more Dale drank, the more violent he would become. And because of Dr. Dale's outward persona, his practice grew. He became one of the most popular and prosperous physicians in Southern Illinois. So he decided that he wanted to have a little more than just his practice. So he branched out and he decided that he would try agriculture business. A few things that he had gotten for his agriculture business were expensive rare cattle breeds and he had a catfish farm. Oh, yeah. I have never heard of a catfish farm before, but I do know like a fish farms. Yeah, so. that's what I was just going to say. I, I, I guess that makes sense that it would be specific to one type of fish. So unfortunately, um, unlike everything else that he was accustomed to, his agriculture business did not get the immediate results that he had wanted. And later, Marianne found out about an affair that her husband was having with a woman named Martha Coley. She will come in later. Oh. Martha was married, and she also had a daughter with the local judge. And Martha decided that she would leave her husband so she could continue on her affair with Dale. So so I don't know if Martha's ex-husband got their daughter or what, but we don't hear anything about Martha's daughter. And despite the constant abuse and knowing that Dale had an affair with another woman, Marianne stayed with him because what could she do? Leave. That's what she can do. She can. But with three boys in the 40s, 50s, it would have been so difficult. Thankfully, though, because of his affair, he was an absentee father most of the time. But when he was there at the house, he was violent and harsh with the family. Basically, at this point, he was just coming and going from the house as he pleased. In 1966, Dale told Marianne that he no longer loved her and he wanted to be with Martha, even though Marianne had just told him that she found out that she was pregnant with their fourth child. Oh, my gosh. So he's not so she's not just staying with him. She's like with him. She's with him, with him, like living in the house. He comes and stays at the house. They're doing the nasty. I mean, he's just like, just, oh, this is bad. Okay. Yep. And it does not get better. So despite this, I mean, even though he's with Martha, the couple remained married and Dale ended up moving in with Martha, even though Marianne was pregnant with their fourth child. So in 1966, Marion gave birth to another boy and named him Patrick Dale Cavaness. During this entire time, Marianne had remained faithful to Dale and stayed in the area for years while he just came and went from their house as he pleased. And even though he wasn't physically there for his family, physically or emotionally, he did financially support them. So now let's speed forward to 1971. So Dale was just doing his thing, drinking, doing drugs, hanging out, and he was driving and he caused an accident that killed a man and his 10 month old daughter Oh, because in the time there were no seatbelts or there were seatbelts, but there were no car seats for kids. Mm-hmm. Now the man's wife was injured, but she later survived. And when Dale was told that the man and his 10-month-old daughter had died, he said, everybody's got to die sometime. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Like, excuse me? During the investigation, the accident – 
During the investigation of the accident, police found a loaded pistol and a shotgun in the car, and they found an open bottle of alcohol. When his blood alcohol level was taken, it was over twice the legal limit. Jeez. And the legal limit, at least today, is 0.08%. Mm-hmm. So he had to have had a blood alcohol content of at least 0.16 if they're saying it was at least, you mm-hmm. know, twice the level. Well, and that's even just going off of today's standards. So what mm-hmm. was the legal limit in the 50s? Exactly. And according to ScienceDirect.com, if your blood alcohol level is 0.12 to 0.15%, motor function, speech, and judgment are all severely affected at the height of blood alcohol, at this height of blood alcohol. Staggering and slurred speech may be observed and severe impairment of driving skills. And he was over that. (laughs) He was over that. So his blood alcohol level was higher. So going to the next stage of 0.15 to 0.2%, this is the blood alcohol level where a person appears drunk and may have severe visual impairment. Oh, wow. So he was so drunk he couldn't even see straight. Exactly. Yikes. So Dale was found to be under the influence of drugs and alcohol, and he was charged with reckless homicide. And... Believe it or not, this was actually the tipping point for Marianne, and she filed for divorce. Good and her, for you. Yes. And her and her four sons moved back to St. Louis. So she finally got to move back to that big city she wanted to. Dale ended up pleading guilty in the reckless homicide case. And let me just tell you. In the state of Illinois, reckless homicide is classified as a class three felony and conviction of that felony could result in a prison sentence from five to 10 years, along with a fine of up to $25,000. This man, literally this prominent white doctor got a slap on the wrist. He only got three years of probation. (laughs) And according to one source, he had a $500 fine, which in today's money would be $3,324. And in another source, it said that it was $1,500. So that would have been um, $9,974 today. Regardless, it's nothing. Yeah. And despite the fact that he killed a father and daughter, it did not hurt his practice one bit. And nor did it affect his standing in the community. Literally, no one cared. No one gave it a second thought. What? In the 1970s, his business ventures started to fail despite him sinking a ton of money into his projects. Because of his failed business ventures, his child support payments to Marianne started to arrive late, and eventually they just started, they just stopped altogether. In 1977, Dale's oldest son, Mark, decided to move back to Southern Illinois from St. Louis to work at one of his father's farm called Hickory Handle Farm, which, I mean, it sounds super cute. Yeah, it does sound super cute. I'd probably go. (laughs) And unfortunately, Mark never had a good relationship with his father, and his father often referred to him as a worthless, no good pot smoker and a disappointment. And here he is literally on drugs and alcohol all the time. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, his son is the no-good pot smoker. Totally. 
And one day, Dale was on the phone with his ex-wife after he had had a fight with his other son, Sean, and told her, I don't care if I go to jail. I will kill him. Whoa. Let's keep that in mind, my friends. Now we're going to skip on over to April 9th, 1977. Dale invited his ex-wife and all of the kids over to his house for Easter in El Dorado. And even though Mark was living with him at the time, he lived in a trailer on the farm. He did not show up for Easter dinner and the family got concerned and decided to go look for him. So like I said, at the time, Mark was staying at one of the trailers that Dale had placed out on the farm. So his brother, Kevin, thought that he would go look for him there. As they walked over, they saw Mark's Jeep, and as they were walking up to the trailer, Sean, who is 15 at the time, looks down by the Jeep and sees a decaying corpse. Whoa. Yeah. So at the time, all they could tell was that he had been shot, and animals had destroyed so much of the body that the only way that it was confirmed that Sean had found his brother Mark was a belt buckle that was on the skeleton. Oh my gosh. The last time that people had said that they had spoken with or interacted with Mark was 12 hours earlier. Whoa. So he was that decomposed in 12 hours. Yes. So I put here, I'm sure you're asking why are the remains skeletal? If he had been seen a few hours earlier. Well, let me tell you, my friend, it's because he was found on a farm in a rural area and there were a ton of scavenger animals around. So within that 12 hours, he had just been absolutely picked apart from his waist all the way to the top of his head. Oh my God. The only reason that waist down was preserved was because he was wearing thick jeans and his work boots. They couldn't get through it. Mm -mm. Now they did find his shirt nearby. They think an animal had ripped it off whenever they were trying to get to Mark. Mm -hmm. But they said that it had holes in it from a buckshot from a 12-gauge shotgun. Mm. And there was a 2 by 4 inch hole in the shirt where he was shot in the heart. Oh, my gosh. That's close range then. Very. Immediately, investigators assumed that it was a homicide. And the lead investigator even said that he believed that Dr. Dale was involved. But they were unable to find any evidence because of all of the animals and family members just moving through the area. Because at the time, they didn't realize that it was a crime scene. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, check on him. Yeah. And unfortunately, this case was never solved. And the townspeople did not even suspect their favorite doctor. Just a few people. Only one detective thought that Dale had murdered his son. And he was a 32-year veteran on the force. Hmm. He said that after going through all of the evidence, they were able to rule out every other member of the family except for Dr. Dale. And he said, and as you know, literally if everyone else is marked off, the remaining Mm -hmm. person is usually the culprit. Mm -hmm. We're just going to kind of skip around a little bit. And in 1980... Dr. Dell was indicted on a felony charge with deceptive practice for falsification of paperwork and improper billing, which isn't really surprising yeah. because if they're not billing some people, 
they might bill other people too much. Okay. Now, he eventually was given a plea deal for that as well, and he received one more year of probation and another $500 fine. He was also ordered to pay back $1,775 in restitution, which today results in about $5,987.35. A couple years later, in 1982, Dr. Dale was convicted of another reckless driving offense after causing another accident, but luckily this time no one was killed. And even though all of his sons were grown at this time, Dale had a very strange relationship with all of his remaining sons. Sean was especially messed messed up after finding his brother's remains at 15. Like, I can't even imagine finding a sibling's remains at 15. Mm. But he was also hurt by his father's rejection, and he turned to his father's vice, which was drinking and drugs. That's too bad. But thankfully... Sean noticed that it was a problem. He noticed that he had an alcohol problem. So he went to inpatient rehabilitation centers. Good for you, Sean. Good for him. After finishing rehab, he moved into an apartment. And because Sean was nothing like his father, he wasn't the all-American boy. Dale was often heard commenting that Sean was a failure and a disappointment. And if you remember earlier, that's exactly how he described Sean's brother, Mark. Mm Mm-hmm. Even with all of these cruel words, in 1984, Dale approached his sons, Sean and Kevin, and asked if they would like to participate in an insurance investment that would help them out in the future. It just sounds like a scam. (laughs) It does. That is exactly what it sounds like. An insurance investment? No. But it was one of those, he said that it was one of those policies that after so many years, you can borrow against the policy if you need to. And they were like, oh, you know, a good life insurance policy. We can pull money out if we need it at some point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you obviously have to pay it back. Mm -hmm. And Dale had told the boys, his sons, that it would be an investment for them and him because he would pay the premiums so he could write it off as a tax deductible. And the, the guys were so excited because this is the first time that they could remember that their father actually wanted to do something for them. That's so sad. It is so sad. There, I mean, at this point, Sean is 22. But one thing that they did not know was that Dale actually owed close to half a million dollars. Even though he had all of these assets, he was half a million dollars in debt. And that's 1970 money? Uh, this is approximately 1980s money, which I didn't do, um, as much as I love my inflation calculator. I didn't do anything Mm -hmm. on that just because I didn't have an exact amount and I didn't have an exact date as to when it was owed. Sure. Now on December 13th, 1984, Sean's still warm body was discovered by a farmer in a remote area in Missouri in a town that used to be called Times Beach, and he had been shot twice in the head and just left there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. At first, Are all of these brothers going to end up dead? No. Okay, just half good. of them. Oh, that's terrible. 
<laughs> it's so bad. That's that's not even a funny joke. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Sean did not have his ID or his wallet on him at the time. So at first, police were unable to identify him. During this time, they did go ahead and, you know, assess the crime scene. And they said that when he was shot, he was standing facing away from his killer with one arm up. So probably pointing at something, just making some type of, type of gesture. Mm. And um, whenever he was facing away from his killer, he was shot in the back of the head with a gun less than an inch away from his skull. Oh, my gosh. And the second shot went into his skull at a distance from about 12 to 18 inches away when he was on the ground. So it would have been like one shot, fall, and then two shot, like a kill shot, execution style, whatever you want to call it. Because of Sean's past, um, he did have a previous arrest record, and police were able to identify him from the fingerprints associated with a misdemeanor traffic arrest. Okay. Because of the area that he was found and the fact that the motive had at the time seemed unclear, there were no suspects at first, but they did believe that it was a robbery gone wrong, once again, because he didn't have his wallet or any valuables on him. A crime scene analyst had said that they were looking for someone who most likely had no connection to the victim, and they were motivated by financial gain to pull the trigger. Once they found out Sean's identity, they went to his apartment and interviewed all the neighbors. From the interviews that they learned, from the interviews, they learned that a car had been circling around the area the night before the body was found so often that the neighbors found it super suspicious and wrote down the license plate number just so they would have it in case something happened. That's smart. Sometimes I see really sketchy cars on the road and I put it in my notes on my phone. (laughs) Just in case I come across an Amber Alert or something. Yeah, that's actually, I should probably start doing that. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Like, sometimes you'll just drive past a car and you're like, "Mm, they look like they're up to something sketchy. Yep. Or driving to work and there's a super sketchy van. Yes. I just, I mean, those little white box vans, like, they're just all so creepy. We're conditioned to think they're creepy. We are in like anytime that I drive behind a van, I am like especially looking into it to see if I see anything like human shaped. Yes. And the other thing, like um, if I'm in a parking lot and I see a car sitting in the very back, I know employees park back there. So it's probably just an employee. But mm-hmm. if they're alone and they look sketchy, I'm like, I'll sit there for a minute just to make sure that they're not doing something bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We've got to look out for other people. Yeah. The neighbor had said that once Sean had returned home from wherever he was at, he embraced the man in the sketchy vehicle before going up to his apartment and later leaving with the man. And he left around the, he left with the man around 3 a.m. So because they had the license plate number, they were able to track down the license plate. And I will give you three gla- three guesses on who it was. And the first two do not count. Um, Dr. Dale. Yes, it was a Dr. Dale. (laughs) (laughs) So it was no other than Dr. Dale, who just so happened to be Sean's father. They went to interview Dale, and one of the first questions that they had asked was, when was the last time you saw your son? And he claimed that it had been a few weeks since he had seen his son, but the police knew that it was a lie from witness testimony and the fact that his car was linked as being seen with Sean before he was found. The authorities called uh, his brother, Kevin, 
And uh, just as he was getting ready for bed and asked him to come down to the station because something had happened. And Kevin just, he was so frustrated. He was like, what, who are you? You know, how do I even know that you're police? Mm -hmm. But he was just like, you know what? I'll just go down to the station to see what's going on. And as soon as the officer started explaining to him what happened, he immediately apologized. And he's like, I'm sorry, you know, this isn't the first time that one of my brothers has been murdered. And he thought that this was someone's idea of a cruel joke. Because as you remember, growing up, his father loved to play cruel pranks Mm -hmm. on him. Well, and nobody, nobody wants to think any of their siblings will die and let alone two of them. Exactly. Like, and they were his two older brothers. Yeah. So uh, police, the police that were working with him, they were a little newer and they did not know about Mark's death. So Mm -hmm. they asked your other brother, was he shot and killed as well? And of course, that's exactly what happened to Mark. And they asked, you know, how old was he when he was murdered? Like, how long ago did this happen? And it turned out that Mark was 22 when he was murdered, which just so happened to be the same age that Sean was when he was murdered. What the heck? Now, personally, I believe that this is just a coincidence. Okay. Like, I don't think it had anything to do with anything, but they were both 22 when they were murdered. They you don't think both- there was something in the, that policy or whatever that they had done with their dad about age 22? I don't think there was anything about age 22, but mm. this was only a couple months after they set that up that okay. um, Sean ended up dead. But at this point, like, we only know about the life insurance policy on Sean. Yeah. We have no motive for what happened to Mark. Yeah, that's true. Now, before the memorial service, one of Sean's brothers, and I think it was Patrick because of the verbiage that was used, but it said that one of the brothers called the funeral director about Sean's ashes, and he was told that the check had bounced. So she told them, you know, Kevin and his wife, they did pay for the funeral expenses, Mm -hmm. but she was sure to mention that she had asked Dr. Dale to pay for the cremation, and he replied with, Sean was a hindrance and an embarrassment and paying for a funeral would be a waste because Sean has no friends. Why spend money on flowers and music? That's terrible. Isn't he just like dad of the year? (sighs) Like I, I could, I could never imagine saying something like that about my son. No. Like, and he's not even born yet. (laughs) So, um, yes. Um, Because Sean's funeral was actually paid for, they did end up going to the funeral service. And Dale upset everyone because he was acting like it was more of a celebration than a funeral. Like, he was like, I don't even know what he was like. But he was partying it up. And in my mind, it's like, oh, well, one of these, like, another one of these embarrassments is gone. And he he even told people at the funeral about what a disappointment his son his son Sean was. Wow. So that next day, as Dr. Dale prepared to leave St. Louis after the funeral to go back home to Illinois, police arrested him for the murder of his son. At first, Kevin was shocked when he found out that his father had been arrested for his brother's murder. But shortly after the shock wore off, he instantly realized that it, it was his father who murdered his brother. And he realized why as well. And he told investigators that his father had taken out life insurance policies on both himself and Sean a few months earlier. Mm -hmm. 
the police uh, or the policies that he had on Sean was approximately $140,000. Wow. Which today would be a total of $374,520.89. That's a big life insurance policy. Oh, it's so big. Like, I know you can have life insurance policies that are bigger than that, but I just did mine and I only made it for enough to pay off my funeral expenses, all of my debt, and then um, it would pay for college for my daughter. Yeah. Um, other than that, like, I didn't go crazy, you know? I'm like, jeez. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it can get expensive. Okay, so, and it is also at this time that authorities find out that Dale had received $40,000 after the death of his son, Mark, from a life insurance policy that he had taken out on him whenever he moved in with him. Whoa. So at this time, you know, 10, 15 years later, or no, it was seven years earlier, mm-hmm. somehow inflation got crazy because that $40,000 transferred to $183,464.03. Dang. This information, with this information, the police had found their motive, and Dale was immediately indicted on charges of first-degree murder. That's when they had picked them up right after the funeral. Good. The residents of El Dorado and surrounding areas could not believe that their Dr. Dale could ever do something like this, so they raised money to fund him a good Are you kidding me? Not only did they raise money... Some even offered to sell their houses to get the funds for a good defense attorney. What? <laughs> yeah. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I don't it care is. how good of a friend no. you are. Like, in my mind, I'm like, it could be it could be you, Gates. If you're on trial, I'm going to be like, <laughs> hold up. Do I not know her as well as I thought I did? Yes. But, like, I, I mean, I wouldn't expect anyone to sell their house for me. Nope. No. But he was such a pillar of the community, and he was just such a nice guy. And um, at one point, they raised $37,000, which translates today to $98,980.52. That's wild. But another reason why they wanted him to have a good defense attorney was because locals, and this is something that they had told the media, they believed that the detectives in St. Louis were trying to frame Dr. Dale because there was no way that he was capable of murder. That's even after blinded the entire city. He has, because literally he was able to get away with killing a man and his 10 month old daughter and his two sons and his two sons. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, of course, Marianne and Kevin believe differently and they believed that Dale had murdered both Sean and Mark. We don't hear much about Patrick through this case at all. The day before Christmas, on December 24th, 1984, Dale admitted to police that he was with Sean the night of his death. And remember how we had talked about how Sean had kind of turned his life around and mm-hmm. he had uh, gone to rehab? Mm-hmm. Dale said that both him and Sean had been drinking. The night that Sean was found murdered. And it is said that Sean's blood alcohol level was four times the legal limit. Holy. I can't even imagine. 
So going back to the article um, from earlier, that meant that he would be showing signs of severe intoxication and he may not have even been able to move without help of another person. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So even though they had been drinking and Sean is incredibly intoxicated, Dale claims that Sean asked him to drive him to a remote area. And once they were there, they got out of the vehicle and Sean asked his dad for his gun and he just handed it over. Okay. Like, don't, don't give a drunk person a gun. No. (laughs) Now, Dale claims, you know, and this is just all that Dale is claiming. Mm -hmm. He claimed that Sean had told him to tell mom I love her and I'm sorry. And then he somehow reached around to the back of his head and shot himself in the head. (laughs) Dale did admit to firing the second shot because he said that he just thought it would be emotionally easier on Marianne to believe that her son was murdered. What kind of psycho? What? A white man who is used to getting away with everything. He got, he already got away with murdering one of his sons. He got away with hitting and killing a man and his daughter. Like, he was just like, anything that That's I tell crazy. them, they're going to believe. That's great. I thought at first you were going to say, like, he was, he was thinking he was going to put him out of his misery, which is just as awful. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, he didn't even go that far. He's like, no, I'm just going to tell her, like, yeah, make it look like he was murdered. It's easier on her. Yeah. For sure. She, she just would have been an emotional wreck. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to see my ex-wife like that. Oh even God. though, you know, he's still with another woman at this point. <sighs> so obviously Dale at this point, you know, he's in jail. He's an accessory. He's claiming to have just shot him to make it easier on his ex-wife. But um, in a plea, he pointed authorities to where they could find Sean's ID and everything else that he had on him that night that he had taken. Police went to his home. He searched the area on the farm and all of the items, including the murder weapon, were found at the farm exactly where he said that they were. Ballistic evidence showed that the first shot entered the back of his head and the second was slightly from the side of his head. So it meant that suicide was impossible. Because, I mean, I guess if it was, like, the side one first, it might have been easier to claim suicide. Yeah. But they said that it was more natural. Like, as sick as that is to say, like, holding the gun here makes a lot more sense than back here. Well, even then, they said that it was the back half of his head that he was shot at. So you'd have to, like, you know, put your hand behind your headphones and shoot. Like, that's an unnatural angle. Well, and you can tell when a bullet enters it. You can tell the way the gun was held. So, mm-hmm. up in, in a natural sense, to go to the back of the head with your own hand, it flips the gun upside down. Mm-hmm. So, if the gun is upright from the back of the head, that doesn't work. Yeah. it None of it made sense. And during his trial, his first trial in 1985, he admitted that he, quote, probably had threatened to kill Sean and was committed on making it look like a homicide. Oh. And, I mean, he had a super lengthy trial. I'm so thrown off by this. Like, he's trying to get away with it, trying to make it look like it's easier for his ex-wife, and now he's just admitting it. I'm I'm real thrown off by this man. We're all confused, but the only thing that could get me through this research 
is just remembering like they literally live in a sundown town. He is the um he's a pillar to the community. He feels like he can just get away with everything because that's that's what has happened for years. Mm-hmm. So um his first trial in 1985 was uh declared a mistrial because Dale's polygraph results were shared with the jury and they were not properly introduced as evidence. So thankfully, they did have another trial that next year. And in November 1985, at the age of 60, the jury deliberated for three hours and only three hours and found Dale guilty of first-degree murder. In January 8th, that next year, 1986, he was sentenced to death in Missouri's gas chamber. Now, unfortunately, in November of that year, at 7.30 in the morning, um, someone was walking past and found Dale hanging in his cell by electrical cords. So he hung himself or hanged himself. eyes are rolling so hard. Yep. Oh, they're going to roll even more hard here in a second. So obviously he had taken matters in his own hands and committed suicide in order to avoid the gas chamber. But it is said that he intentionally picked the day that he did to commit suicide because it was one day after the suicide clause on his life insurance policy expired. Oh, for the love of God. Yep. And that, that makes me think even more that there's something about age 22 in these things. It, it might've been, it could have been that it could be that he just likes life insurance, like frauding life insurance policy. And that's something that his sons had said as well. Well, it's even after his death. Like what? Mm -hmm. Okay. But they were pissed because he, you know, frauded the insurance company one last time. And he listed his longtime girlfriend, Martha Coley as his beneficiary. So for years, this man had believed that he was able to get away with anything, and in a way, he did. Mm-hmm. He had made the members of his community believe that he was a pillar to society and a dedicated physician to the community, when behind closed doors, he was an abusive alcoholic that valued money more than his own children's life. Literally, he killed half of his children for insurance money. And himself. Mm-hmm. For insurance money. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) I have to just like need an eye (laughs) massager because they were rolling so hard. Yep. It it was a frustrating case to cover without a doubt. But I just don't even have words for him. (laughs) I don't even have words to say. Oh my gosh. Yep. But I, I wanted to do some more research on the gas chambers because I know that we don't have any more gas chambers. No, we don't have a, a lot of that has been ruled out now. I think mm. it's just lethal injection, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I think so. I still have electrocution. I think they still have the electric chair. Are you looking it up? I am. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Five execution methods are still legal in various places in the United States. Wait, can I guess? Sure. Okay. So obviously we're going to go with injection. Yep. Um, And then I'm going to say the chair. Okay. Um, As weird as it is, I'm going to say firing squad. Okay. Even though I don't know if like when that last was used. Mm -hmm. I can only think of three. 
So the ones that are still legal in our lethal injection, electrocution, gas chamber, firing squad, and hanging. Dude, I forgot hanging was a thing. Hanging is still legal in places in the United States. That's crazy. That is insane. I wonder how they decide. Like, you know. Maybe there are certain criteria that has to be met. Maybe we could do like a little bonus episode sometime on that. Yeah, on how they decide which method of... Well, I mean, it depends on the state too. Some states Mm -hmm. it's only legal to do one type. But here, Utah. Utah still uses firing squad. Okay. Dude, that's crazy. (laughs) So what what about Illinois? What do they do? Lethal injection. Yeah. They reinstated the death penalty on July 1st, 1977. Oh, so when did he um, receive death penalty? 1986. Oh, so they had not been doing death penalty for very long again after, um, before he was sentenced. And in 1983, Illinois adopted lethal injection as the default method of execution in Illinois. Okay, so maybe there's just a default method that each state prefers to go with. Yep, although it does say that the electric chair remained operational. To replace lethal injection if needed. So, hmm. interesting. All right. So, Gates is going to cover our missing person for the state of Illinois. Yes. Yeah, so, this is going to be Miss Penelope Nelson. So, she was last seen on December 2nd of this year. And, and I could be pronouncing this. She's missing from Centrilla, Illinois. C-E-N-T-R-A-L-I-A. Centralia. Centralia? I, I like Centralia better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was born July 11th, 2006. So she's 15 years old. She's a white female. Um, her hair color is light brown. In the picture, she has it up in a little top knot. Mm-hmm. Um, blue eyes. She wears glasses. It looks just to be a simple square frame. Um, dark in color, possibly a dark purple. But, I mean, you can't really pay too much attention to glasses. Yeah. Um, That's all that I have. I've looked at multiple um, different places where she was posted missing. And this Mm -hmm. is currently on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children that this is. So if you have any information, if you see her, please contact. You can call 911. 1-800-843-5678. 1-800-843-5678. That's 1-800-THE-LOST. Or you can call her local police department in Illinois, which is 1-618-533-7602. Yep. So speak up if you see her. Mm-hmm. And Let's if get you this want, little girl home. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, if you are not comfortable reaching out to any of those numbers that Gates gave you, you're welcome to um, send it to us at Killer Country, where we are more than happy to put a tip in in on your behalf, mm-hmm. um, completely anonymously to you. It'll be under our names. Yeah. And you can do that by a couple of different ways. Um, first off, uh, through Patreon. That is Killer Country Podcast on Patreon. You could find us on Facebook and contact us through Messenger at facebook.com backslash killer country podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram and message us that way. And we are at killer country podcast on Instagram. 
Or you can go ahead and just email us, shoot us a DM, killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. You can send us case recommendations, uh, campfire stories. Um, if there's any cases that you would like us to cover, any missing pe people that you would like us to cover, bring up, anything like that, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Mm -hmm. That's what we're here for. So thank you, everybody, for coming along with us to Illinois. And we are going to see you in Indiana. Indiana. Can't wait to go to Indy with you guys. Oh, no. So exciting. All right. See y'all later. Bye. Bye.